book of Ezra, as Dr. David mentioned earlier, Ezra uh, chapter 7. <clears throat> Ezra chapter 7. <clears throat> and today we'll be looking at Ezra chapters 7 and 8 as we look at the hand of God on his people. This is certainly a theme that we see woven throughout chapter 7 and chapter 8. The hand of God on his people. As we begin, let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we stand upon the solid rock. We thank you, Father, that in you there is a sure and firm foundation. And so this morning as we come before you and we lay our hearts before you, we sit before your word. I pray, God, that we ourselves would be transparent. Lord, that as we come, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would illumine our minds to understand and grip our hearts to love your word, grip our eyes to see and to peer deep into the truth of your word. And Lord, that you would change our lives and transform our lives, that we would live differently because of your word. And so now, Lord, as we turn our hearts this morning to your scripture, I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Two weeks ago on Sunday afternoon, my family and I began about a 1,000 mile journey from here to northern Indiana. And many of you were praying for us during the week, and so I want to say that I, we very much appreciate your prayers and the cards that you've sent. You've been so, uh, so generous and so loving and showing the love of Christ. But as we left and we were heading on this 1,000-mile journey, we drove straight through. We got there about 9 o'clock or 9.30 on Monday morning. And as we arrived there, we were pretty beat, pretty worn out. It took about 14 hours to drive straight through. And the trip was a little bit cumbersome. It was Twelve of us traveling together in two vehicles, and uh, thankfully the kids slept for most of the way, but there was the occasional, are we there yet, or when will we be there? And, uh, but, you know, the, the thing is, as I think about the trip, we really had nice roads to drive on. I mean, the interstate system in our country is it's very good. Uh, I mean, there's not another interstate system like ours anywhere in the world. The cars that we have to drive are pretty safe. I mean, we encountered cops on the journey, didn't get stopped by any of them, but we encountered them, and they were there for our protection. We were aware of that. Uh, and so we were very thankful for the fact that we have uh, police officers that patrol the highways and are able to, uh, to keep us safe on the journey. We could have gotten there a little bit quicker if we'd have taken an airplane. I mean, there is that option, but it certainly was cost prohibitive for our family to fly up there. You know, as we approach this passage this morning, Ezra and the people of Israel are about to take a 900-mile trek from Babylon to Jerusalem. 900 miles. But they didn't have the road structure and the infrastructure that we do. They couldn't pile everything into a minivan or hop on, hop on a plane and, and head 900 to 1,000 miles over to another destination. It took intentional planning. It took hard work. It was a hard journey. 
they would have to travel for four months, the scripture tells us, to make it from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Well, it's in Ezra chapter 7 where we actually begin to encounter the man Ezra. Up until now, chapters 1 through 6, we've not encountered Ezra, the one for whom the book is named after. We've seen the ministry of Zerubbabel, the one who would lead the people of Israel out of exile from Babylon back to Jerusalem in the first wave, and that would happen about 538 B.C. Well, Ezra's ministry takes place quite a bit later, some 57 years later to 60 years later in 458 B.C. Chapter 7 tells us in the text that it's the seventh year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, and it's about 458 B.C., Jerusalem's temple has been completed through the ministry of Zerubbabel and the people of Israel have been living there and really a lifetime has passed for many people since uh, the time of Zerubbabel and the completion of the temple to the time of Ezra's arrival. I mean, think about it, 60 years, that, that's, that's a long span of life. That's a long time to, uh, to pass between any interaction or anything that the text would tell us about what was going on. During, we don't have any records of what was going on during that time. We have the book of Esther, which takes place during that, that interim time period, the book of Esther. And so if you go and read the book of Esther, we, we see the ministry of Zechariah and perhaps the prophet Malachi as well during that time. So... Ezra 1 through 6 was really concerned with the reconstruction of the temple, or, or as some would say, reestablishing the worship of God's people. They are able to come before him and worship, or reconstructing the temple. And Ezra 7 through 10, it said, is concerned with the reconstruction of the community of God's people. That is, the rebuilding and restoring the the reformed life of God's people. So Ezra 1 through 6, the reconstruction of the temple, reestablishing worship. Uh, Ezra 7 through 10, the reconstruction of the community, our reformed living. And so if you found your place in Ezra chapter 7, I want to begin reading in verse 1, but I I won't read through the end of chapter 8. We'll just read verses 1 through 10 for now, and then we'll uh, skip around and highlight uh, the different portions of the chapters. So if you found your place, say amen. Let us read together. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Syriah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Achitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Utzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. And so his genealogy has been traced all the way back to Aaron, the chief priest, which is significant. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord, his God, was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For in the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. 
because the hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is a tremendous passage in the book of Ezra. It gives us keen insight into the life and the ministry of Ezra, into the man of Ezra as God's man. And so what I'd like to do is kind of begin by looking at the commission of Ezra. Ezra's commission, as he's been commissioned by the king to bring this group of people back into the land of Jerusalem and just kind of walk through the story quickly and see how the king commissioned him and entrusted him with this responsibility. And so if we look in verses 7 through 9, it kind of will be the launching pad for us walking through the narrative. It says, some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and it tells of the people, they were returning back to Jerusalem in the fifth month. And so it gives us a brief account that's fleshed out in the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8 that tells us what happened and how they were traveling back to Jerusalem. But there's something interesting as well that this theme that's developed throughout chapter 7 and chapter 8 that I hinted at a moment ago. And that is this idea of the hand of his God was upon him. We see that over and over and over again in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And it's so encouraging to me, and I know it certainly was to Ezra as he experienced the hand of his God being upon him time and time again, seeing uh, the, the, the victory that God would win on his behalf and the protection that would be afforded them and, and the audience that he would be given with the king. Why? All because the hand of his God was upon him. You see it there at the end of verse 6, the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. You see it there at the end of verse 9 in chapter 7. Because the good hand of his God was upon him. Fast forward a little bit to the end of chapter 7 in verse 28 it says. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. And then chapter 8 verse 18 it says. According to the good hand of our God upon us they brought us a man of insight. Verse 22 of chapter 8, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. And then verse 31 of chapter 8, it says, and the hand of our God was over us. Get the point? The hand of their God was upon them. The hand of their God was upon Ezra. The hand of their God was upon his people. And listen, I think this is tremendously encouraging for us in many ways, but one respect is we, we see the faithfulness of God working with His people, leading His people, being involved in the lives of His people, always working to accomplish His good purpose in their life. And of course, we certainly know this truth in the New Testament today and the promise of Scripture. In fact, what Jesus says in the Great Commission itself, He says, I will never leave you, what? Nor forsake you. He gives us the deposit of His Holy Spirit that we've been singing about this morning. That God has placed His Holy Spirit in the life of His children. That He would guide us and lead us and direct us. Listen, the reality that the hand of God was upon them hasn't changed. That the hand of God is upon His people, on you and me. The hand of God is upon us today. 
The question is whether or not we are seeking and following God's leading as His hand is upon us, desiring to lead us by His Spirit. And I think we'll see in a few moments this morning, one of the things that was just so significant and wonderful about the faith of this man, Ezra, We see it in verse 10 specifically of chapter 7, and we'll highlight it just quickly here. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes. Well, just to back up quickly and and run through chapter 7 and chapter 8. There was a decree given to Ezra by King Artaxerxes. This decree is is detailed in verses 11 through 26 of chapter 7. And it's probably given in response to a request which came from Ezra. And that request came in Ezra chapter 7 verse 6 here. When it said, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king, king granted to him, that is Ezra, all that he requested. The king granted everything that Ezra requested. And so we see that this decree is given to Ezra that he would go and that he would really have four charges that he would do as he went and led this group of people. The first one is that he would lead the return of the exiles. And we see that in verse 13. He says, I have issued, King Artaxerxes said, I've issued a decree that any people of Israel and their priests and Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. In other words, here, anybody that wants to go back to Jerusalem or return there, you have the freedom and the permission to go and to return. And so this is that second wave of exiles that's returning. But we, if we look in comparison to the first group that went with Zerubbabel, the numbers are staggeringly different the first group that went with Zerubbabel were anywhere from 42 to 50,000 people if we add up the numbers here from chapter 8 verses 1 through 14 you see that the number of people that returned here with Ezra about 1,500 to 2,000 it's a big difference considerably smaller caravan in fact, as we begin to look into, <clears throat> into chapter 8, and you can see kind of the, the, the genealogy, and we won't read through all of the, the genealogical record there, but really there, there's, this, there's this group, uh, or, or, or these families, as we, we look at these families and see these families um, laid out in chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, if you compare them back to chapter 2, verse 1 through 14, you notice that many of the family names are the same listed here as were listed back in chapter 2. And this isn't a huge deal, but I think it's a significant point that we, that we need to note. And the point is this. There was a consistency over the span of generations as to these families who would return, those same families would return back to Jerusalem. The ones who had gone before, those same descendants from those same families would also be the ones who would continue to return through Ezra, through the leadership of Ezra. And I think this is significant. I think it's significant for several reasons, but one of the reasons I think it's significant is because we we see that There's this generation to generation to generation of passing down the faith, passing on the faith. 
And we kind of read between the lines here a little bit, I admit. But you see this, this pattern of passing on the faith from father to son, from, from mother to daughter, from parent to child, passing on the faith. And some 60 years later, here's amazingly the same group of families sending more of their people returning back to Jerusalem There's one other thing I want to point out here, and as Ezra is leading this group, Ezra leading this caravan that's about to return, he noticed that there were no Levites that had volunteered to return alongside of them. Now, the significance of Levites is that they were the ones who would who would work in the temple and would serve alongside of the priest and and help out the priest. But one of the things that we begin to notice we make the connection with verse 13 of chapter 7 that, uh, that Artaxerxes had issued a decree that anyone who wanted to return could, that perhaps these Levites had simply grown comfortable in their place in Babylon. There wasn't a lot of um, persecution. There was relatively an easy life. Babylon was very, uh, very profitable, very wealthy, as we'll see in the gifts that were given for Ezra to take back uh, the, the, the 100 uh, talents of silver, three and a half tons of silver that would be given to the priest to carry back with them. Um, and so we, we kind of see this, uh, this occurring for the Levites. None of them wanted to step forward to return with the people to Babylon. In fact, we also see it in Zerubbabel's return, only 74 Levites returned out of 42 to 50,000 people that were returning. It was, seems that the Levites had found a place of comfort and just able to kind of, uh, kind of sink into the background of Babylonian society there. And, but Ezra sends a delegation to them and asks them to come and, and challenges them. And, and with sending that delegation to them, they respond and they come. They take a step of faith and they come and take part in the return. The second thing Ezra was charged with, so the, the first one was leading the, the caravan. The second thing he was charged with was, was transporting the gifts, delivering uh, the order to the satraps of the region in Jerusalem the region beyond the river. And so he's transporting these gifts, and these gifts are detailed in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 7. It says, Bring the silver and the gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and the gold which you find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and of the priests who offered willingly for the house of Their God is in Jerusalem. With this money, therefore, you shall diligently, verse 17, buy bulls and rams and lambs uh, and, and, and with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem. And then he tells them, whatever seems good to you and your brothers, do that with the rest of it. And then he says in verse 21, I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers, who are in the provinces beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently, even up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil and salt is needed. Now, I don't 
I, I guess King Artaxerxes was willing to give all of this or else he wouldn't have set even up to. But I kind of think of it like uh, if you have a, a teenage child and you say, well, I'll, I'll give you up to $100 to go and, you know, hang out with your friends or do whatever. I'll give you up, up to $100 for this trip. You, you can pretty much bet that they're going to say, okay, well, I, I need $100, you know. Uh, you kind of set the limit there, and I, I, that's what we see happen here. These are the gifts that are generously given by King Artaxerxes. I think we see why in verse 23. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of God of heaven, so that there will not be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. It's interesting to note what was happening politically at the time where uh, King Artaxerxes was somewhat, his kingdom was being spread out and spread thin, and so he wants to make, uh, make certain that he appeases all the gods, and so this is one of the things that he seeks to do, is send offering and ask the people of Israel to pray for him. But just to think about all of the gifts that were given, 100 talents of silver, that's three and a half tons of silver, that's a lot. And then to think they have to carry that for... 900 miles, 100 cores of wheat, that's 1,000 bushels of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 600 gallons of wine, and 600 gallons of oil. That certainly is a lot to carry. Salt unlimited. There's a third reason that King Artaxerxes charges, or third thing King Artaxerxes charges Ezra with, and the third one is to simply inquire about Judah and Jerusalem it probably has to do with the law not being kept faithfully or are lived out by the people of God. We see that in verse 14. For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And so he sends him there to teach and to enforce the law. That's kind of the fourth thing that he sends him to do in verses 25 and 26. <clears throat> Ezra, he says, you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God. And you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. You know, this really sums up the commission of Ezra chapter 7 and chapter 8 as to show how God's hand was upon Ezra to accomplish great work and great purpose for his people. We see how God used a multiplicity of variables to accomplish his work as he brings Ezra and this group from Babylon to Jerusalem. And it might be through pagan kings. It, it might be through raising up one of his servants to speak and to lead out on his behalf. But God, even while he's outside of time, he, we see him patiently working in the lives of his people throughout the generations as he's raising them up to bring them back into Jerusalem. Nearly 150 years has passed since Nebuchadnezzar ransacked Jerusalem and leveled and destroyed the temple. And now the temple has re been rebuilt and the people of Israel are coming back into the city of Jerusalem, into the area of Judah but we see something that is evidenced in this passage. It's evidenced in, uh, in, in all of Scripture, really. And that is that God desires His people be devoted to Him and to Him alone. 
So we see the big picture of the hand of the Lord upon all the people of Israel as they journeyed back to Jerusalem. We see it in chapter 8, verse 31. It says, then we journeyed from the river Ahava on the 12th of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was over us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes along the way. But I want us to look a little closer and see the hand of the Lord upon his servant Ezra. Not only was the hand of the Lord upon his people, but the hand of the Lord was upon his servant Ezra. And I want us to do that by looking at the character of this man, Ezra. In chapter 7, verse 6, we're told of Ezra and a little bit of his background. Verses 1 through 5, we're, we're given the, uh, the, the backdrop, the genealogy, which takes him all the way back to Aaron, the high priest. And it certainly makes him one who is qualified for the role that God is calling him to. Verses 1 through 5 give us that. And then verse 6 tells us this Ezra, this one who is from Aaron, this Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. Ezra was a skilled scribe. Ezra possessed a level of of technical expertise and, and technical experience and ability regarding the law of Moses. And it was this skillfulness that God would cause to make him useful for King Artaxerxes. Verse 6 also informs us that Ezra probably held a position of prominence in the Persian palace. Some have suggested that he was a sort of kind of a, a prime minister to the Jews on behalf of King, Arta, uh, King Artaxerxes. I'm not sure exactly how accurate that is, but we learn that he gets an audience with the king there in verse 6. And he makes requests and the king grants his request. And then we see this issue of the law. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. And as he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, he would give himself to the study and the the, the learning of the law and applying it to life. The law of Moses speaks certainly of, of the Ten Commandments, but it also speaks of the Torah or the Mosaic law. And it refers refers to that which is recorded from the second book of the Bible, Exodus through the fifth Deuteronomy, and kind of all in between. And so Ezra, this was a man who was God's man, and he had given himself to the study of the law of the Lord. And we see in a moment the reason that he did that was because he wanted to commit himself to live for God. This included studying the moral laws and the social laws, the food laws, the Purity laws, the laws that came to temple worship and and sacrifice, the laws that regarded how the people were to come and just simply worship at the temple. There was a point in all these laws, though. The point in the Mosaic law was to keep God's people holy, to keep them set apart, to keep them as people who would serve Him and would follow Him. That they would be a holy people who lived in covenant relationship with God. They would be a holy people who were set apart to worship and to follow God. And so we see in verse 10, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord 
and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. He had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Verse 10 is instructive for us. It's instructive because it it contains this purpose clause that begins in verse 10 with this word for, and it connects it back to verse 9. It informs us, at least in part, as to why the good hand of God was upon Ezra. It was in some respect that Ezra himself had set his heart upon studying the law of God. And so while we certainly affirm God's sovereign hand in leading, we can't miss the reality of what's being communicated in this passage and in this text. It's this reality of how God's purpose is at work at the same time that Ezra is fleshing out and working out his purpose, and these purposes are coexisting and working together. You know, and while we don't really, we can't really know or don't really know the balance We see that Ezra was one who set his heart to study the law of the Lord. I think this is really the truth that we see fleshed out of the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where he says, So then, Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work both in you to will and to work for His good pleasure, it is this idea of God's working and our responsibility and working as well as they come together to accomplish God's good work and God's good purpose in our life. God's purpose at work within us and at the same time, we work to follow and accomplish the work that God is calling us to. I think that's what we see happening here for Ezra, the man of God. But why is this significant? I think verse 10 clues us into the the inner quality and the character of Ezra as the man of God. That he would set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Literally, it means to be resolved, to be firmly established in. He was firmly established and resolved to study the law of the Lord. Ezra was determined and he was devoted with all of his being. One might say that this is the picture of an Olympic athlete when they begin training for the Olympics and invest years and years of training and and, and, and beating their body and, and disciplining their body and they set their heart on achieving and attaining this goal. What is it? The finish line. Hopefully they, they want to achieve the gold medal, but they they set their hopes on achieving and and finishing that race. They devote themselves to it. They they become passionate about it. I think Ezra was one that we see who is passionate about studying the law of the Lord. I would parallel this today for you and I. Are we passionate about studying the Word of God? Is it something that we have set our hearts to do? That we have, we have come before God and we, we set our hearts to study His Word and, and to know His Word? I don't know about you, but when I begin to think about studying, it kind of brings back uh, some frightful memories of being in college and going through school. I remember it was the summer of uh, 2000 when I was... Uh, taking, I had reserved that summer just because I disliked biology so much. 
No offense to anybody who likes biology, okay? But I, I dislike biology so much. I saved that summer just to isolate those two courses that I could take in college. And as I began, uh, began taking those courses, I, something came over me, and I just began devoting myself rigorously uh, to study. And I began studying and learning, and, and I just devoted myself for hours to studying, and by the end of the semester, or by the end of the summer course, I actually had the highest grade in the class, which was an achievement for me. I mean, I was setting the bar on these tests that we were taking. People didn't like me. I was that guy. But one of the things that, that I did was I, I just I set, my, I set my mind on studying. I, I was intent, and I, I poured my mind into studying of the material. There's one difference here with Ezra. With Ezra, this was something he was passionate about. He set his heart to study the law of God. He wanted his life to be filled with a knowledge and an understanding of the law of God. And so there was this mental side of what he was doing, engaging and studying the word, the law of God. But then there was also this side with the emotion that he was loving the word of God, the law of the Lord. And so as Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, though his study was a bit different than mine, as a skilled scribe, he engaged his mind. I think sometimes we approach Scripture and we don't want to have any kind of mental work engaging in Scripture to study the Word. We think that it ought to just maybe leap off the page onto us and, and our mind just be filled with, with this deep truth. But that's not how it works. It does take some effort. It does take some skill and some looking deeply into the word. But let me tell you that as you do that, God will match that effort with a passion and a love for his word. Oh, that we would set our hearts into study the word of God like Ezra did. That we would have a resolve to study the word of God passionately like Ezra was studying God's word. Dr. David read a moment ago from Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40, and just that passage really just kind of highlights what is happening in Ezra's life. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me to walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Think about this in the ministry of Christ as he's being tempted in the wilderness those 40 days and Satan comes to him to tempt him and he says, man does not live, what, on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Listen, church, listen, believe, we've got to come to a place where we are so hungry for the word of God that it becomes that which sustains us. And if we come to that place where God's word is sustaining us physically or, or spiritually, we are, we are depending on God for our sustaining, for his sustaining hand, we will have the joy that Ezra is talking about here as he sets his heart to study the law of the Lord. Can this be said about you and I? Can it be said about me that I've set my heart to study the word of God But not only had he set his heart to study the law of the Lord, he had made it a point in his life to practice it. It says it there in verse 10, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it. 
Not only did he have a passion to know God's law, he had a passion to live it out. It wasn't just an academic exercise for him, a mental engagement. It was something that had an end result. He wanted to know what God's law said, and then he wanted to be able to apply it in his life and live it. Too many people today try to have their own ideas of God's demands or or God's desire for us without knowing what God's Word calls us to do and how God's Word calls us to live. But we see the first thing that precedes a living for God is an understanding and knowing and, and setting our heart to know God's Word. For when we know God's Word, we know Him. And as we know God's Word and we know Him, we know how to live for Him. And so it wasn't just a mental exercise for Him. This was mental understanding which led to active living. It led him to live for God and to live according to these laws. You know, I think today too often people approach Scripture like it's a buffet line. We want to pick and choose those things that that we want to have in our life and those things that are hard. Uh, Well, that's not part of the entree that I'm eating today. But you see, we can't do that when we come to God's Word. We'll be miserable. We'll be miserable if that's how we approach Scripture and how we approach the Christian life. Because there won't be any joy. There won't be any fulfillment in walking with God because we're not completely yielded to Him. We'll be empty without satisfaction. James, in the book of James, chapter 1, he says in verse 22, But prove yourselves doers of the Word, And not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. When he turns around and walks away, he forgets what he looks like. Or maybe James 4.17 that says, He who knows, this is the one that stings me. He who knows the good that he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. You see, Ezra was concerned with walking a straight path. He was concerned with his feet following God and the word of God lighting the path so that he might see and live a godly and a holy life. He was concerned with his steps being ordained by God. And it strikes me that Ezra wasn't the type that just wanted to attend Bible study and then hope it took root in his life. He approached the law of God, the word of God with an intentionality passionately devoting himself to it, that he would glean wisdom and live according to God's word. Think about the gospel of John in John chapter 15. Verses 1 through 11, where Jesus is having this discourse and teaching his disciples. And he's teaching them about abiding in him. And he says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Then he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, but apart from me, you can do Nothing. And he says, if my words abide, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And this is how we prove to be his disciples, that we would bear much fruit because we are 
abiding in him. I want to ask you this morning, Christian, are, are you abiding in Christ? Do you have such a love for the word of God that you read it, want to study it, and then want to live it out and apply it in our life? Now listen, I'm not trying to beat us up this morning. I know that we all have areas where we need to improve. But I want us to see just this real tangible sense of, of, of a relationship with God that's, that's filled with joy, joyful living. It's filled with living as pursuing God, not just refraining from sin, but it's going after God. It's walking with God and being filled with joy. Is that where we're at? Something that's really telling in this passage is these first two things have to happen. It has to happen in this order. For Ezra first, he sets his heart willingly. It's his volition. He, he sets his heart. He makes up his mind and then he asks God. I would say that he would ask God or, or, or for me, I would make up my mind to set it deep upon the word of God and then ask God to match that, that desire that I have and, and meet me there. And so Ezra, he, he sets his heart to study the word of God. Then he begins to live it out. And it's only after he sets his heart to study, then he begins to live it out that he can then teach, teach it to others. And to teach his statutes, verse 10, and ordinances in Israel. This was the purpose and goal for Ezra. This was the end result. He wanted to teach the ordinances and the statutes of God to the people of God. Ezra knew that he had no business teaching, teaching others if it was not first being modeled and lived out in his life. To do so would be hypocritical. So first he must examine his own life and then he must learn and apply it to his life and then he would be able to teach others. And I think this is particularly instructive for all those who teach in the church, who teach scripture, for elders, for Bible study teachers, be it Sunday morning or equipping classes on Sunday night or midweek Bible studies or some other Bible study meeting somewhere else. It is it is of vital importance for anyone who is a teacher that we would wrestle with the Word of God first, apply it in our own life before we begin to try to just teach it and disseminate some intellectual information. That's not what Ezra was about. He wanted to know God's Word first, learn it, apply it to his life, and then teach others. So whether it be among children or whether it be among students or whether it be among adults before we can ever teach a passage of scripture it's necessary that we would spend time in the word ourselves and that it would deal with us personally i hate to keep returning to james but it just it goes hand in hand in james 3 1 james says let not many of you become teachers my brethren as we will incur a stricter judgment i i think the primary application here in teaching is is for our teachers, but there's a secondary application as well. And I think it also has application for parents and and grandparents. As parents, we seek to teach our children the word and the ways of God. But we know well, or at least I do, the times when my children ask really these innocent questions that kind of catch me in a difficult position where I realize the 
inconsistency of the things that I'm saying and the things that I'm doing. I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but it certainly has occurred around my house a few times. You know, as parents, we're to teach our children. As parents of youth, we're to teach our youth and and we're to instruct them in the Word of God. And as we read through the Proverbs, we see the father entreating the son, saying, give me your heart and, and listen to my commands. We see in Deuteronomy 6 the command to teach our children when we sit down and when we rise up, when we walk along the way. Parents, listen, we have a role of teaching and instructing and discipling our children. Psalm 127 in the Psalm of Ascents, it says the children are a blessing and inheritance from the Lord like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior are the children of one's youth just ready to be released as you have shaped and sharpened and fashioned this arrow to be released into the world. Parents, grandparents, there's this role of teaching that we cannot overlook. And I think it's directly applicable for us that we would see what Ezra's saying here, that he would have a heart to study the Word of God, to practice the Word of God, and then to live out the Word of God and teach others. There might be a third application as well. It's one of discipleship. And as we as we ourselves invest in others, as I invest in others, as you invest in others, whether it be through, it be through disciple groups meeting together to sharpen one another, or, or older men teaching younger men, or older women teaching younger women, or, or student workers teaching younger student workers, upperclassmen teaching underclassmen. At some level, though it's not necessary at every level, But I think at some level, we're taking this truth that we're learning Scripture, applying Scripture, living out Scripture, and we are teaching others about Scripture. Think about it for a moment. What if you, just over the next two or three weeks, began focusing on that passage, John 15, 1 through 11, and said, you know, I'm going to focus on studying that passage and I just want to study deeply on it and meditate on it and chew on it. And I'm going to focus on abiding in Christ, focus on walking as a disciple of Christ. And then you begin to take a passage like, I don't know, Galatians 5, and 23 that says the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And you say, God, I, I want to see those things manifested in my life. Help me to abide in you Teach me how to abide in you and how to walk in this way so that when I'm around others, they know that your presence is with me because these fruits of the Spirit are just kind of coming out. I'm loving others and and, and I'm full of joy and, and I exercise patience, right? And as you begin to see these qualities, you you meditate upon the Scripture, you focus on abiding in Christ, and you see these qualities in your life begin to grow. And guess what happens? Other people begin to notice these qualities as well. And you then have an opportunity to teach others about walking with Christ and being a disciple of Christ and abiding in the vine and how it's when you abide that Christ is bearing fruit in and through your life. So there is this character of Ezra the priest, the scribe, that we see fleshed out in verse 10 that really is significant. And I think it's important for us to hear it, to understand it, to see it. There's also, in chapter 
7 at the end, there's this faithfulness and prayer that we see in Ezra. As the hand of the Lord as God was upon him, he was quick to come before God to pray, to thank God for the way that God was working in his life and thank God for the way that he was working and leading And so the king had generously supplied for the offering and and had sent all of these gifts to go to the temple and he provided for their trip. But Ezra blesses the Lord in verse 27. He doesn't bless the king, right? He doesn't bless the one who has given him all these gifts. Instead, he is blessing the Lord. Verse 27, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers. Listen, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. I would say that this is a healthy sense of Ezra, or a sense of Ezra having, or having a healthy sense, I'll get it out in a minute, a, a, a view of God's sovereignty. That Ezra has this healthy sense of, listen, it's God who's steering this thing, and he's giving praise to God for God's provision for them. In verse 28, and he has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus, I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. That is an amazing statement to me. That Ezra would know this connection to God. And that he would be dependent, so dependent on God that he returns praise to God for all the provision, and then he knows, he knows how the hand of God is upon him, and because of God's hand being upon him, he has been strengthened. His soul has been strengthened, that God has strengthened him. And imagine as he reflected on the, on the situation, he was strengthened as he, he knew that the hand of God was on him and was leading him. How about you, believer? Have you been in that place where you're experiencing the hand of God leading you and you have been strengthened because you know that you're right, right smack dab in the middle of God's will and what he is calling you to do. And when you reflect upon it and you consider it, it is God that is strengthening you. He's strengthening your soul, your inner man. He's giving you strength to walk according to his ways. Ezra exhibits a strong faithfulness in prayer and it and it leads him to take serious his testimony before others, his testimony of God before others. Ezra was concerned over his testimony. We see that in chapter eight, verse twenty one. In eight, verse twenty one, it says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava. So once the Levites come and They join the group. They've been waiting at the river of Ahava and waiting for the Levites to come. The Levites get there and then he proclaims a fast there at the river. He says that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, for our little ones and all our possessions. Verse 22 really clues us in to his desire to make certain that God gets the credit. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So the answer, he says, so we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter and he listened to our entreaty. 
You see, Ezra had made a definitive statement about his faith that he trusts that the Lord his God was going to protect him and going to provide and lead them through. And he doesn't want to ruin his testimony by asking the king to do something that would contradict what he had stated was going to happen in his trust in God. I want to challenge us this morning that we would have a faith. Now, I, I think this passage is not, it's not prescriptive. In other words, it's not telling us that this is how we always ought to operate. It's descriptive, telling us what happened in the specific situation that Ezra is walking through because later on, Nehemiah does use the king's guards in order to help him as he's in the land rebuilding the wall. But this passage teaches us about being concerned for our testimony before others and how we present our faith in God and what it says to other people. And that certainly is something that Ezra was concerned about. He was concerned about his testimony. But he was also concerned about his integrity and his transparency. And we see this through all of the details that are recorded here in chapter 8 for all of the gifts that were given to them. And as they receive these gifts, they count them, they disperse them, and then when they get to the temple, the first thing that after they rest, they, they come to the temple, and the first thing they do is they begin to recount out all of these, uh, these gifts, the, uh, the silver and the gold and the utensils, and record it and, and put it in place where it needs to be. The point of this is we see Ezra as a man of character who wanted to study, he set his heart to study the Word of God, the law of God. He set his heart to, uh, to, to apply it in his own life and then teach it. And then it, it affected every area of his life as the hand of his God was upon him. When it comes to our transparency and our integrity, to hold, to hold to such hold things in such high esteem, I, I wonder if we are as concerned about the things that we do and what kind of picture it portrays to the world around us when they know that we're believers in Christ, when they know of our testimony that we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we as concerned about our testimony and our integrity as Ezra is about his testimony and his integrity before the king. It's a question for us to ponder that we would make certain that we guard our actions, that we live in such a way that we're above reproach and that we're ready to give a defense for the hope of the gospel that is within us. I want to close by asking us to consider a few questions. One is, are we setting our heart like Ezra to study the word of God, the law of God? Is this something that we're passionate about? And then are we depending on God to strengthen us, to help us live out our faith? Are we faithfully teaching? Or are, we, are we faithfully taking the opportunities that God provides in order to teach others about walking with Him? As we consider these things this morning, are you aware of God's presence in your life? I mean, really, are, are you aware as a, as a believer in Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit, are we daily aware, moment by moment aware? Are we sensitive to the presence of God? 
as His hand is on His people, are we sensitive to God's presence in our life? I want to ask us this morning just to prayerfully consider these things. Come before God confessing areas in your life of sin that you need to give to Him or asking Him to strengthen you in areas that He's revealed possibly that you need to grow in. I want to encourage you to be intentional in this this morning. Ask God to give you the strength to supply the will to walk with Him and to follow Him. I want to close this in prayer and invite you to be in prayer this morning about God's hand and God's working in your life. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you to digest your word, to apply it in our lives, I pray that you would strengthen us, Father. God, that you would strengthen each of us here this morning to set our hearts upon studying your word and to be passionate about practicing it and living it out, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would also be doers. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would strengthen us to walk with you, to follow you, to teach others faithfully, to live out our faith, and to be concerned over our testimony and the message that we communicate to others through our lives. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you, God, that your hand is upon us. And we pray that you would strengthen us to accomplish your will, to walk in your ways. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. In his courts with praise.